0: Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats.
1: So, let's get started. Hello, everyone. Hello, hello. We have a special guest today, Dr. Serena Love who you all might know, working about ancient Egyptian bread, beer, yeast, all these fun things. I'll quickly read through a bio of Serena so we can get a background, and then we'll just dive right in. Serena is an anthropological archaeologist with 30 years experience working in Egypt, Turkey, Israel, Iraq, and most recently in Australia. She earned a Ph.D. from Stanford University, so very close by to Kara and I, with a specialty in geoarchaeology and prehistoric architecture, where her research developed new methods for analyzing mud bricks and theoretically blending phenomenology and archaeological science to reach innovative interpretations about social lives in the past. Serena's publications have focused on symbolic landscapes in Egypt and the Neolithic site of Çatalhöyük in Turkey. When I was doing some background research on you, I found all your stuff on Memphis, which is really interesting. Serena has lectured internationally and taught archaeology at Stanford, Brown, the University of Queensland, and held a senior fellowship at Coach University in Istanbul. She's committed to science communication, which is great because that's what we're doing here today, community-led research, and I spent the past seven years working with Aboriginal communities in Queensland with grant writing, capacity building, and developing curriculum-aligned archaeology-themed teaching material for Australian classrooms, which is wonderful, and we'll talk more about that at the end of today. Your goal is to use archaeology to connect people today with people of the past, and she's driven constantly to explore, learn, and share the subject wherever possible. So thank you for joining us today. We all welcome you to the podcast. Thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about your really awesome work on ancient bread, beer, yeast production. Most notably, I think maybe people know about this. It's from your work with Seamus Blackley, who's the inventor of the Xbox. Mm-hmm. People know best. Mm-hmm. You have Club Yeast on Twitter. That's, you know, that's Seamus's account. Yeah. yeah. All this work. So how did you guys meet and start working together? How did this project develop? What, what got you guys true. going?
2: Yeah, this is such a wild story. So it, it, it all started on Twitter and it was April 2019. And I got tagged into a, a conversation that Seamus had started on on Twitter saying, I have ancient Egyptian yeast. And of course, my my first thought was bullshit. No, yeah. you don't. What what you've got is museum dust. And mm-hmm. so I, I I called him on it and started asking him some questions in in, in, in not in the public space but in the in direct messenger and and you
1: interrogated in
0: him. You interrogated him in his DMs. Well, because that's is, all yeah. of our questions
1: about it too. How did you do
2: this? Yeah, so, yeah. And so I asked him a lot of really annoying questions, as he said. And but he worked out that I actually know what I'm talking about. So we decided. Well, his 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 original sample he was really kind of sketchy about and never really fully disclosed where it came from. And so he said, okay, well, let's just do this again properly. And so I said, okay, well, wh- okay, how do you want to do this? And he's like, get me into a museum. And I thought, okay, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll just do that. And so I just, you know, using my network, just started contacting a few people who thought we could go in and sample some of their pots. And, you know, a couple of museums told me to piss off. They weren't at all interested which is fair. And you're not going to tell us who they are. (laughs) No. No. I will, actually. The British Museum said no because they were working on a similar project. Okay. And then there was a few others just absolutely
1: no. It was a fine. Do you think they said no because they thought you would be doing invasive techniques, a sample, or they didn't understand the methodology yet or just like...
2: Yeah, some of it was meh. Some of it was... You know, it just sounded too out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, the the museums that we did get into, there was a really rigorous process of vetting us and our methods. And, you know, it it didn't just one email. Yeah, sure. Come, you know, collect our samples. I had to submit a bunch of paperwork and then Seamus, because he was the one actually doing the collection, had to write up a really detailed methodology and how this wouldn't harm the pots and how it was uh, non-destructive and it won't leave a mark and all Mm -hmm. that kind of, we had to assure the museum that we weren't going to damage the the objects. I suspect Um,
0: the British Museum said no because, and you said they had a competing project, but the science has now gotten to the point where these kinds of things are possible and they have their internal scientific teams and they're doing similar work. So that means you're on the right path, I would say.
2: I hope so. I've contacted some more museums recently and again I'm just not giving responses. Hmm.
1: I wonder too if this is I mean, just working in museums in general, like Kara knows like for her coffins work. I've, mm-hmm. you know, have worked in museums as well that in general the process is really difficult. And so museums are underfunded and don't have enough staff just to take mm-hmm. the time set aside to have a researcher come in, take things off display. I think sometimes it's just easier for them maybe they don't want to say no. It's just a lot of times they don't have the time to. That's your main
0: problem. Well, that's your main problem with most museums around the world today. And this is a global phenomenon with cost cutting, austerity, whatever you want to call it, anti-intellectualism in the United States, however you want to term Mm -hmm. it. There is very little money to do anything but keep the doors open so that people can come in. But to do anything in addition to study the pieces that are in your collections that's, that's almost impossible. And even if people are coming in from the outside and saying, look, I'll pay for it completely. Mm-hmm. I'll take the samples. I'll deal with all of it. You don't have to do anything, but give me access. Even that access of giving somebody at the time in which a curator is leaving their desk and email and other duties for the day to watch you is, is sometimes so much of a burden.
2: They just can't,
0: they, they can't.
2: That, that's amazing. Yeah. It makes you wonder what museums are for. Hmm. Like, what's?
0: Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a larger discussion, but it's all yeah. connected. Everything is connected yeah. to everything else, and museum underfunding is a massive part oh, of do. why. I mean, we
1: yeah. can bring up the yeah. recent job that was listed from the British Museum for a bioarchaeologist mm-hmm. specializing Egypt, mm-hmm. and the pay that was go- going along with this job was I think it was like thirty thousand pounds, like per annum, like. What? Yeah, we <laughs> can't a, live off that. But for a specialist no. who works only, you know, a bioarchaeologist in Egypt, that's you know a very specialized job. You have to have a lot of training, unique skill set, and it's the British Museum. You think, oh, it should have a lot of money, but they don't.
2: They're publicly funded.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: I mean, access to the British Museum is free for that reason. So yeah, yeah. Well, it's tricky.
1: But to continue your story, so you guys oh. are asking for access. You're getting Yeah, some so we eventually
2: got into the Boston Museum of Fine Arts and the Harvard Peabody Museum.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And there was a bunch of people who was helping me out. Egyptologists like Leslie Warden, who was giving us an idea of which vessels to pick. I wasn't entirely sure looking at the catalogs, which ones to choose. And yeah, then Seamus went and collected both of those in a, in a week and then sent them off to the lab. But what I didn't know is that he squirreled away one sample for himself. And that was the bit that I just went, oh, uh, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. And so then he took it home. Wait, wait, and- wait go back, go back. So what
0: do you mean he squirreled away? So he, you had some samples that you sent where? To, he sent them
2: to the, the lab of Rich Bowman at University of Iowa. And, and that's where the analytical work on the genetic side of the, not the genetics, sorry, the, the microbiology side of the yeast was going to be performed. But he took, but Seamus took one home. He took a sample home. I benefited from this, so go on. Yeah, so did I. And, well, we all did, because this is what went viral on Twitter. So he took one home, and, you know, Seamus is a bread maker. He loves sourdough. He's been fiddling around with this for years, which is where this whole project kind of came from. And so he took this sample, which I'm just going to correct the record, because what he actually put on Twitter is incorrect. What he had, the sample that he took was from the Middle Kingdom, it was from a bread loaf that was found at De La Bathory in the foundation deposit. Mm. It's one of those triangular loaves of bread that was found in the foundation deposit of the, the Temple of Mentuhota. I always thought it was from a beer jar. Okay. No, if you actually look at that now famous photograph, on the lid of the jar, he's got the code of the museum written on the label. Mm. If you look that up, it's actually the bread loaf. So, it's a middle kingdom from 1990 BC, but he keeps saying that it's the other one and it's not, unless he's got another one. But what's in the photograph is that jar. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that, and that label. So, it's, it's the middle kingdom one. Anyway, it's, it's, a, it's a detail only a nerd like me would pick up. But, but it makes a it difference
0: off. because I always wondered why you would get yeast from a beer jar rather than a bread loaf when you're doing this kind of work. But I assume, oh, I guess the yeast for
2: beer is the same as the yeast. For bread. And that's one of the research questions is, is it? right? Because right. it, right. it may not be and given that you know all the yeast is airborne at this time, mm-hmm. it might very well be the same. But as you start cultivating it, I would imagine that there would start to be a genetic drift between bread and beer. Mm-hmm. But that's precisely one of the research questions that we're addressing now as you're starting to amass more samples is, Where is the genetic drift between bread and beer? And was it the
0: same? A drift because people are keeping the yeast and feeding the yeast over generations and they pass it down to the next generation. Yeah,
2: yeah, but they're isolating it as well, right? So beer becomes beer and bread becomes bread. Whereas in the beginning, in the pre-dynastic, they're more the same, right? Bakeries and breweries are together. Mm -hmm. And so the yeast is going to be the same. But then as time progresses,
0: they start to separate. Everything's going to have some airborne yeast attached, right? So even if you have separations you're still going to get that natural sourdough yeast coming in yeah. from the air
2: yeah, yeah for sure, sure. but there you know the, the way that sourdough works is you're using a starter and you're using a mother yeah. right to mm-hmm. so, to start the next one so you're actually feeding it yeast so and, and and it will change but i would think that the that the beer starter will start to develop its own character and the bread starter will care but this mm-hmm. is this is me not being a microbiologist this is me just being a an amateur beer brewer <laughs> and that's how i got into this project mm-hmm. initially is in 2018 we had a big exhibition here at the Queensland museum called i think it was called ancient lives and it was a british museum collection that was touring around and we got it for about six months and in the Queensland Museum, they do these after dark programs, which is once a month, they open the museum at night and they have guest speakers and a bunch of events that are aligned with the exhibition. And I, I've i been to several of these over the years and they're they're really, actually really good fun. When I caught wind that this exhibition was coming, I had contacted the museum through some of my my colleagues. I know one of the curators there and said, would you be interested in doing ancient beer for these after dark events? And they said, yes. So I had partnered with a local brewer here in Brisbane to make me some ancient Egyptian beer. And, and, and it wasn't, you know, I, I didn't claim that it was authentic. Like I wasn't using authentic yeast. I wasn't, I was just making a recipe that was using ancient Egyptian ingredients that would have been contemporary with the time. Mm-hmm. And... You know, hops, you know, as low hops as possible. Unfortunately, in Australia, our brewing laws dictate that we have to have hops in order to be classified as a beer. Mm -hmm. So we put in the bare minimum and we made three beers for this museum. And it was an absolute hit. They sold out every event. What do they taste like? They were amazing. The favorite was one that we called Sekhmet's Rage. It was a red sour beer Mm -hmm. uh, and it was pomegranate and hibiscus. Wow. And that was the, that was the empty keg every, every time was the second Rage. And then the other ones we had, uh, we had the Kings of Giza and that was in the style of a Saison and that had uh, date and fig syrup Mm -hmm. uh, with some coriander in it and juniper. That sounds nice as well.
0: Um, Yeah. What's the company that you were
2: working with? It was called Bacchus Brewery. Um, And he's known... (laughs) Yeah, Bacchus brewing in in Capella Bay here in Brisbane and he also does beers for like the Renaissance fair. Very cool. Um, and yeah, and so he does, you know, medieval style beers mm-hmm. and he's known for doing really unusual recipes in small batches. So I knew he was he was the right guy for the for the job. Can you go back um, to the hops thing? What are <laughs> hops is what make beer beer? Right. So it's if you get like a an an IPA, it's really super hoppy. So it's actually just a flower, but there's a lot of different varieties and it's what gives beer its flavor. Hmm. Well, but the ancient
1: well, Egyptians wouldn't have used didn't have hops because it's a Europe northern European plant, right? Yeah, I actually
2: heard a rumor that it was domesticated in China. Oh, uh, oh I don't know. I don't know if that's true. If any of your listeners can like sing out and tell me if that's correct or not. But I heard that it was domesticated in China around the 10th century. So even some like German beers don't have a lot of hops in it. Mm-hmm. American mm-hmm. beers are hoppy as just really super hoppy. Um, the new trend now is in the sour beers. They don't have any hops. Mm-hmm. So ancient Egyptian beer, no,
0: no hops. hops. But they must have included other. They included other things.
2: Do we have any recipes, Serena? I don't think so. The the closest I could find was in the lexicon, there's like 150 words for beer. Okay. And it's all over. You've got some great phrases like your friend's beer and sour beer and iron beer. And the, and I can only assume that all of those relate to recipes. But the, there's a level to it that I have just a hundred questions. Like, were there certain beers for certain festivals? Were there certain beers for every day versus elites? You know, where, where's the social hierarchy in these beers? Because there has to be. Like, you know, just yeah. now you've got your your Miller Genuine Draft that everyone's drinking, and then you've got your top end craft beer that are like twenty dollars a bottle kind of thing, and there's everything in between. Mm-hmm what Did that exist in the past, that there were special beers for special occasions or special beers for certain social classes or your everyday beer? And when I was lecturing at the museum, one of the questions that came up almost every lecture was someone saying, because I would say that beer is safer to drink than water because the, the beer is boiled, right? Mm-hmm. And so it kills your, your bacteria. So someone's always asking me, what about the children? Mm-hmm. What about the children? And I thought, well, yeah, that's a good question. because it's assumed that the way that you make beer is that it's in a jar. You know, if you look at the ancient Egyptian beer jars, they're very porous, right? And they've got this mud lining to keep it from seeping out of the jar. But you can't control like, as opposed to now where you've got a glass bottle and a cap lid, like it's a contained space. And so you can create the carbonation and you can prevent things from, from coming into it. But I would think that they're very weakly alcoholic because, yeah. you know, a lot of the gas and stuff is is mm-hmm. dispersing. So yeah, maybe you're, maybe you would give it to your kids. Well, and I if think you're so, doing, if you're doing, doing like you a, a
1: fast ferment too, if it's only fermenting for a couple of days, I remember we were in Ethiopia and we were, they were bringing over some like homebrew and it was a fast ferment kind of mead that they were making. They did it over like two to three days. It was like 2%, very yeah. light and, you know, negligible amounts like of kombucha. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Very kombucha with
0: the mother still at the bottom. One thing, you know, it's important to remember that in Egypt, the rich people did get to import wine, but this place grows beer because it's so wet. It's not a place that has the aridity and rain fed agriculture that supports a vineyard. And so wine does, you can't do it in Egypt, but it's shit. And so the good wine you really have to bring in, but beer this is the place for growing beer. And in many ways, I think they would have just perfected it. And given the number of words for different types, I mean, there must have been a whole range, a whole hierarchy of different kinds of beers. Same, same as in Mesopotamia.
1: Well, to that point, the story of like raging Sekhmet and how she has to get drunk to be pacified mm-hmm. and there had to have been dyed red beer in some ritual ceremony and Beer always comes
0: first in the ritual. Beer mm-hmm. always comes first. It has a primary place over wine. Bread and beer are what you start with, and then you add on the special extras: some linens, some wine, some other, some other things. But yeah, it's also what the it's part of the
2: rations. Like every yeah. day, people are being given their bread and their beer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's just such a part of culture. And and yeah. if you look at some of the the pre dynastic excavations in Abydos, uh, they're full of of well, not only beer jugs but of breweries.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Was a, a there's another one at Compolis. They've mm-hmm. got masses amounts of of breweries, and this is early. It's
1: like 3800. Mm-hmm. What better um, way to keep so, your people happy? Yeah, it's it not an mm-hmm.
0: understatement to say that bread and beer built this patriarchy. It built this regional state. It built the kingship. It's it's the monopolization or the or the craft that and and the intensification in terms of production that then allows you to draft more people into labor. It allows you to create more institutional monopolized growth. It's Mm -hmm. part of the economic system in a way that, I mean, I think Egyptologists are aware of, but people who are obsessed with pyramids in
1: King Tut might not be quite as aware of. So we're collecting yeast from pottery fragments, from preserved bread itself, things like this. How yeah. exactly are you? What is this methodology? Because I think that's a lot of the questions we we have. How are you getting? How is it alive still? How are you getting it and then reproducing it to be able to then make a new bread with it? Oh, or is to, it alive
0: still? How is yes. it alive? Still? And then how is it also not
1: contaminated <laughs> by modern? yeast that's in the air. There's breweries that claim to, you know, go to Belgium and get the Belgian yeast to make their Belgian sours. How is it not getting contaminated? Or once you have it, when it's released to them, wherever you are, then getting changing genetically and reproducing in different ways.
0: Because Serena, you know this, that one of the chief complaints or criticisms of this work is that what you and Seamus think is alive from the ancient world is not it's actually a natural airborne yeast that you're pulling in and you're, a- and you're able to make it work. And, and then you have counter arguments for
2: this to say, no, no, we can prove to you that it is actually an old yeast. So I just want to start with the caveat is, is my background is archaeology. I am not a microbiologist. So we're just going to start right there.
1: That's good because none of us are microbiologists. Yeah. So I don't know oh. if we could handle
2: any of that <laughs> specificity. Yeast is not my thing. I'm and I will say that about a, two years ago, I did a lecture for Harvard all about this project. So, the, And that's available on YouTube. And, so we'll, uh, we so will that, link to that lecture, yeah. Yeah, please. Because it goes much more into detail. But basically, the methodology, what it is, is we, we, there's, there's three steps. So the first thing you do is you clean the surface, all right? So you're going to get rid of anything that's on the surface. So you're erasing that modern dust, anything that's not your surface contaminants. And then they are injecting a peptide into the matrix of either the vessel or of the bread. And that's where you know that you're not getting what's on the surface. You're getting what's in the body of the pot Mm -hmm. or in the body of the bread. So that's why I know that it's not just background, right? Mm -hmm. This is actually contemporary. And then it's extracted. And this is all done in sterilized conditions. They do it once and then they flush it out and then they do it again. Gotcha. And then that's what's then put into a sterilized container. I think it's it's basically like into a cotton ball, a sterilized cotton ball. So so that that's basically the method. There's a couple of minutes on on each, and they they clean it, and then they they inject it, and then the, it's extracted. So it's it's extracted from the matrix
1: mm-hmm. of the
2: the bread or of the ceramic vessel.
1: And so, essentially, by over the millennia it's been sitting, it has like a surface cap that's protecting preserving the ancient yeast. And so then when you clean it in a sterile environment and then retract it out, you're getting that original ancient preserved yeah. yeast that has been kept safe by the dirt and whatever that you cleaned just, off. it just originally. on the surface.
2: Yeah. And it doesn't so, die. It doesn't die. It's still alive. It's dormant. It's mm-hmm. dormant. So that's the thing about yeast is it doesn't, I it, it mean, it dies if you burn it. You know something like that then it's it actually goes but the yeast will just go dormant interesting so you feed it again and it just comes back it's kind of Um, creepy (laughs)
1: yeah
2: so it's you know in in myself i'm a a home brewer and you can you can i can reuse the same yeast batch after batch after batch all i have to do is just give it something to eat again
1: Hmm.
2: and and what it wants is sugar right and and sugar, at least in beer, usually comes from from the grains. Mm-hmm. So when you, if I put a, a yeast into another batch that's freshly ground and boiled grains, the yeast is is really happy because it's got something to eat again. So it might take a day before the yeast becomes active, but it just it's it's dormant until it's fed again. And so that's what's happening in these vessels. No, it's not alive; it's asleep. And then you give it something that it wants, which is a sugar and it, it just come, it comes back. It takes a while. So then, how do I know that it's not contaminated? Mm-hmm. It is. It's 100% contaminated. But this is where the work of Rich Bowman in his lab was doing, was he was able to separate the bacteria from the yeast, and he was able to isolate the yeast. This is one of the reasons why it was taking so long is because there's a shit ton of garbage in there. Mm-hmm. And he had to over and over again isolate just the yeast and get the bacteria out. So yes, it is contaminated with bacteria, um, but we have been able to isolate just the yeast. How do you know it's not
0: contaminated with modern yeast?
2: So the genetics isn't done yet. So Uh, this is a question we can't answer yet. Not yet. No. So we're still working on the genetic aspect of it. Seamus is very confident that because we're getting it from the, the matrix of the vessel, how could, how could it be? Like, it's mm-hmm. the surface has been cleaned. So, anything that's from the, the surface is, is going to be your modern stuff the last couple hundred years. But it's coming from the middle of the pot. How could that be modern? Mm-hmm. Like, when I was in his kitchen, he showed me the
0: yeast as it's mixed with a, a watery, you know, it's, it's floating mm-hmm. in there mm-hmm. and that it was heavy. Mm hmm. And that he said, I think it was heavy, not light, that because it was an older yeast, it had a different density
2: to it. There was a couple of experiments that he was doing in his kitchen. Now, mind you, this is not an ordinary kitchen because Seamus is not an ordinary man. (laughs) So this is someone that when he was doing this in his kitchen, he put an autoclave in his kitchen. So everything is sterilized. Mm -hmm. So his water, his utensils, everything, his flour. Everything is sterilized so that he could be absolutely certain that what he has is genuine. Mm
1: -hmm. What device is that?
2: It's like an ultraviolet light or something. So he had a UV light mounted
1: underneath like his kitchen cupboards, but an autoclave is It's like what the um, dentist uses, right? When they put the little packets and then they put it in. and
0: Or the manicurist.
1: Yes, the manicurist like sanitizes everything. It
2: sanitizes. Yeah, that's exactly right. So every time he had the jar open or anything, he had his UV light on. So anything that's airborne. So he Mm -hmm. was as sterile as he possibly could be. And when he was doing some of his experiments, he noticed a couple of things. So first of all, he mixed it with just ordinary white flour and it didn't really react. So then he mixed it with the yeast didn't react. And then he mixed it with spelt because we're all thinking of spelt is, is, you know, hyped as this ancient grain mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the ancient yeast it was having none of it <laughs> but then you gave it emmer and emmer is what's grown in Egypt and then the yeast went yes oh wow, wow. and wow. it took off it's crazy and emmer is a beast to cook with anyone if there's anybody out there who's a baker you'll know how dense emmer is and doing 100% emmer loaf is a monster to get it to rise and not taste like a brick. It's I've read master- things about emmer that emmer wheat is better
0: for the tax collector. It's better for the monolithic state or landlord who wants to, to exploit and and take as much as possible because it lasts longer. But in terms of like a wheat for eating, it's not the best. It's a, It's a pretty yeah. dense product.
1: Like we have a certain idea of what we want our bread to taste like be fluffy and light and would the egyptians if this was the bread they were getting were these kind of denser loaves they still would have filled you up and made you not hungry like the filled up
2: yeah for sure they're
1: oh, like totally dense but I, I
2: wouldn't say that the loaves <laughs> that Seamus made were light and fluffy but <laughs> they weren't bricks mm-hmm. you know they, no they weren't they, had- they were quite
0: light and airy i mean really yeah. they were like a nice firm sourdough like mm. a firm whole grain sourdough it was it was a nice bread
1: yeah and it just had a very unusual flavor mm-hmm. um, I was gonna say that was my next question like what did it taste like how did it compare to we think of like a modern you're saying more sourdough like yeah so it definitely had the sourdough tang
2: to it but it it wasn't dense like a rye so it's a little bit darker mm-hmm. uh, in color but not it's, so it's not your white bread but it's not as dark as rye and rye is one of those breads that you know really has a distinct flavor to it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So this emmer had had a distinct flavor, but Seamus believes a lot of that flavor is actually coming from the yeast. Oh, interesting. So, it yes, had a complex,
0: um, nuanced flavor. It wasn't like a one note. It was, it was a very savory loaf. And yes, mm-hmm. the sourdough was the most prominent taste, that sour taste, but but then it just had it had a chew to it which was really nice. But I, all I can say is kind of a savory complexity that it was just really tasty, really, really nice. And he also made a couple of loaves with linseed oil, flax mm-hmm. oil, because the Egyptians were going flax for clothes and you could also eat flax, right? Mm-hmm. And he's like, I need an oil. What oil should I use? I'm like, I don't know, maybe try linseed oil because this is something the Egyptians would have used. And then, And then it had that flax flavor, obviously, to it too. And anybody who eats you know goes to their whole foods or gross or you know their health food store and gets something with flax seeds in it it had that flavor as well for the bread that i tried
2: mm-hmm. he sure. experimented also with coriander seeds and a bunch of different fats so he was seasoning his pots with the i think we tried pork beef lamb duck Mm-hmm. to kind of season the pots because it was like well the, those are all contemporary we know those and he he was modeling everything after old kingdom so he was cooking and, and eventually he got to the point of cooking and bread in ceramic vessels so we can mm-hmm. get to that later but at first he was
1: just cooking you know straight up like a, a sourdough loaf like he was used to so how did the ancients make their bread beer? And then when you're reconstructing this process yeah. of what? how did you adapt it, move forward, when we make bread today, most people, if you're not making a sourdough from a mother, you're just using this instant yeast you can buy in a packet at the grocery store. And obviously that you guys found that this very specific yeast you were able to isolate only works well with emmer. So mm. there presumably was other yeasts about if They're all more sourdough-like and they're working with these mothers that would have been cultivated and kept over, you know, years. And then obviously yeast is also entering from the air as well. We have these huge industries of bread and beer production versus local home production. We can talk about the bread pots that we see, the flower pots popping up everywhere as a good sign of the state, state involvement perhaps. And how has your research informed your understanding of the ancient Egyptian industries?
2: Yeah, so I'll focus on the Old Kingdom at first. So most of the stuff that I was feeding Seamus is all from Giza. I spent a couple of years working with Mark Lainer at the Giza Plateau Mapping Project back in the early 2000s. And so it's the project that I know the best. And they have all the bakeries that have been meticulously excavated and and recorded in the work of Anna Wodinsko's all her pottery. And so those are the books that I gave to Seamus and he just you know devoured them and replicated it to the T. So that's the model that we were going off of was the Old Kingdom bakeries visa. And we're just focused on bakeries right now because that's Seamus's focus. My interest is in beer, but that's we're not really there yet. Rich Bowman has played around with some of the beers And I can get to that later, but right now we'll just stick to the the baking. So what Seamus was doing is is he's very methodical and he will eliminate one variable at a time. So he at first wanted to see if he could just bake a loaf of bread. And then he perfected that and he did it, you know, in his normal way of baking sourdough. And isn't it the
0: coolest thing that it only worked with Emmer? That's a key point to really hit on again
2: absolutely that it, and it 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 just didn't want to behave with any with any other grain and then he graduated from just a sourdough loaf to you know a moroccan tagine pot mm-hmm. he wanted to see how it would go and he again is just baking in his oven and then he went and then he mastered that and so he thought okay now i'm going to start cooking in in ceramic pots and so he collaborated with a potter in Pasadena, Los Angeles, somewhere near where Seamus lived, and using all the the work of Anna Wodiska's analysis of Old Kingdom pottery in the size and the texture. And I threw as much research at him as possible about the the, the recipes for the pots. and I was just like, you need dung. You need as mm-hmm. much dung as you can get. And so he like goes to the local stable, and gets as much horse shit as he possibly can. He <laughs> gave it to the potter and he's like, You need this. Because I was like, These pots are coarse, right? Old Kingdom bread molds are really, really coarse. They're not nice pots. They're mm-hmm. they're are u- utility ware they're used and they break and they're Oh just- my god,
0: Serena, I can't imagine the face of the potter when he brings all the horse shit in and he's like, I would like you to mix this with clay and make me pots from this. My husband's a potter, and he would be like, Fuck you, I don't want to <laughs> make pots. Out of shit. Thank you so much. But that's essentially what Seamus is probably asking his good buddy, his potter buddy, to do. Yeah. Probably.
2: That's what I would guess. I I want to be the fly on the
0: wall for that conversation. The fly on the
1: shit.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, you need more, more shit. More, 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 more. You want sand, you want forest, you want as much dung as possible. So anyway, he made it and he. He made a really small pot at first. And again, he, he's just one by one eliminating variables and he's seasoning the pot. And he found that that's absolutely the key mm. is to make sure that the pots are seasoned. And so the inside of his pots are, are black and they're black. So otherwise it sticks. It sticks, but a really good seasoned pot, the bread just comes straight out. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. It doesn't, it's, and it doesn't go and it doesn't seep into the into the pores of the pot or anything
0: looking at Daryl
2: Medina texts and you see how they're trading
0: back and forth, you know, pounds of this much fresh fat, a jar of fresh fat or it's, it's a, an expensive commodity. It would have been used a lot over time. They would have sealed it up as best as they could. But to think that that's also part of bread making, is really interesting.
2: Yeah, for sure. And then when Seamus eventually got to Giza a couple of months ago and actually talked to both Anna and Mark about his findings, Anna started pulling out vessels from Old Kingdom pots and saying, what you're seeing at your homemade experiments is what I'm seeing in the Old Kingdom. Mm. Anna and Mark, who for our audience? Mark Lehner, who is the director of the Keys of Plateau Mapping Project, and then Anna Wodinska is his ceramicist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so she said what he found from his home experiments is exactly what she's finding, that there's a surface on some of these pots. Of the bread molds it's obviously seasoning how often do you get to use a bread mold mold, do you think
0: before it breaks
2: he said that he said he's using it constantly oh same one same one he did crack one he did crack one he was just amazed by the size of them Mm -hmm. like you know the the just how large they were Mm -hmm. so there's that famous scene from the Tomb of Tea at Saqqara, 5th Dynasty, that has the whole bread-making scene. And it's like, what, eight registers, nine registers. And it shows, it's the most complete thing we have of Old Kingdom baking. And it's this whole process of grinding the grains, what we think is making flour and then sifting it. And But there's a, there's a couple of parts of this scene that, that isn't recorded. And we've interpreted what we think it means. And so we have my understanding, Kara, please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is the way that we've always interpreted Old Kingdom bread making is that you would put the pots in the oven and you would heat up the pots and then you would put the hot pot in the ground, pour the dough in and then put a second pot on top. And that was your oven. And Seamus has actually found that that is incorrect. Hmm. And this is the paper that we're currently writing with. We're going we're gonna to put this out because when Seamus went to Giza and sat down with Mark and Anna, they were just blown away by his experiments and, and is just changed the way that we think mm-hmm. about things because no one has ever approached this topic as a baker.
1: Mm-hmm. And that's what mm-hmm. made
2: Seamus really interesting is that he's not an Egyptologist. He's not coming with all these preconceived ideas. He's coming as a baker. I think it's
0: hysterical that you would think that I would know how bread was made in ancient Egypt. If it were a coffin <laughs> construction, I'd be able to jump in here and get all in there, but this oh, is not Come on, Kara, you're more of an Egyptologist than I am. Yeah, but that doesn't mean I know how to bake bread in in this <laughs> world or the, or the last one. So <laughs> let's let's leave that there. But also, I want to remind our audience to Google right now like Google a scene before an, of a the deceased at his or her offering table. And these scenes show these really weird things, these very tall, tall sticks on a table with like an Mm. angle cut or something. And they have this straight line cut. And you're like, what the hell is that? And everyone's like, that's bread. And you're taught Mm -hmm. as an Egyptologist, you know, that's bread. You're like, how can that be bread? I don't understand. But if you have this tall, big conical loaf and you cut it into slices, you're going to get this, this interesting Mm-hmm. long shape. And if you stand it up on, a, on an offering table so that it can be seen because Egyptian two-dimensional art is all about what can be recognized as such. It's not necessarily the way it would have laid on the table, but it, in a standing position so that you can understand it symbolically. And so that's, you know that, that can help us to understand a little bit of the bread. There's a different way of making it. We need the baker to do some experimental archaeology, which is essential and important.
2: This is what Seamus did during COVID you know you walk that man up in his house and he gets bored really quickly and so what he did is he he said to me okay what are they using for fire and i said well it's acacia right so in any have acacia is not more dung dung, dung inside d- animal acacia, dung yeah. probably no so the there's a there's a charcoal expert that was working at giza named rayner and his analysis proved that a lot of it was acacia interesting acacia um,
0: charcoal in particular yeah
2: Hmm. exactly and so Seamus being Seamus he imported acacia from like (laughs) Arizona or something Uh like that and of course this is during lockdowns and everything and so he's got this truckload of acacia coming to his house in Pasadena and and then he's like digging holes in his backyard like I'm surprised his wife you know still (laughs) is into this project because she's she's so tolerant she's amazing and so he's digging holes in his backyard he's importing this and he's got this potter making these pots and he's going and he's got this like temperature gauge thing that is monitoring the the heat distribution and, and and he's just going all out on this. And then he successfully was baking bread in holes in the ground mm-hmm. in his backyard. Awesome. Um, and but then he realized that there were other problems. Like, how do you lift a hot pot out of ground? Like how do you not burn it?
1: A giant pot um, too.
2: It's a giant pot. Yeah. And it's not lightweight. Like mm-hmm. these things are, you know, they weigh like 15 pounds. Like they're, they're heavy. If it's you're really going to be running an
0: expedition and feeding people tens of thousands of loaves of bread. I mean, this isn't something that you, you it can't take a long time. It has to be systematized. It has to be fast and streamlined. Mm-hmm. And we don't exactly know what that way is.
2: Well, this is where Seamus' experiments have really have helped he says it's not taking that long like it's it's almost like breaking a normal loaf of bread like I Mm -hmm. always thought that it would take hours and hours but Mm -hmm. he found that it that it's really not but also he's like there's tools that are missing like how are you lifting and placing these hot pots so you don't have oven mitts so what are you using and and he is asking me where is the archaeological evidence for these tools and I just went there is none I've never heard of this I've not seen it in the art I've never seen it come out in the texts like nothing Mm -hmm. i mean so Um, much of what we have from ancient egypt
0: is tomb derived the great preservation of dried fruits and bread and clothes and furniture but you have what people deemed important enough or significant enough to put in a tomb and i don't know of a baker's tomb with tools that he used that would have been buried with him such a thing does not exist so instead what you have is the elite's tomb like tia who who shows a scene of how to bake bread because then in the next life he would have run a bakery and had all the bread he ever wanted and all of the income that comes with with that that way of of doing something in a more industrial fashion but that doesn't mean we have all of the details and then you have like middle kingdom models right that have the people doing all the little things in Mm -hmm. the baking scene but you can look at the tools they're using in that three-dimensional
2: middle kingdom model but it's not going to help you
0: the way that you would like. And
2: then the bread is changing, right? So by the time you get to the New Kingdom and like the ovens at Amarna, they're completely different. Mm-hmm. So then they're doing like the flat bread, like what we know now, the ice ballady, the, mm-hmm. you the know, pe- almost pita bread, mm-hmm. and they're putting it in ovens. So they these kind of conical loaves of the Old Kingdom didn't survive past the Old Kingdom as far as I know. Mm-hmm. And there are some... What they call almost baguette style, so these long conical ones are showing up in in some Middle Kingdom sites in the deserts, but it doesn't seem to be prolific uh, across all the sites.
0: Mm-hmm. Can I ask a question? But his shame is the bread that he gave me was a whole grain bread. He didn't mm-hmm. he didn't try to make it, it to remove all of the I guess the chaff and the the hull that is ar- encasing the grain and. I, you know, I've been reading a little bit about grains and other things and ancient grains and rice, and it's a very common thing in the ancient world to create a pure grain so that you don't have those, those outer holes that could create problems in the digestive systems of people, especially if that's all you're eating over time, that kind of inflammation that you might get in your intestinal system. So I'm wondering if the Egyptian bread was whole grain. Or was it always whole grain? There must have been like a a pure grain kind of flour. But can can you
2: touch upon that? There's there's a lot of loaves of bread in in museums. One of them in Turin, <laughs> and then the the loaf that Seamus actually sampled from from the Boston Museum of Fine Arts is really coarse, and it looks like it's got a lot of flax chunks in it, <laughs> flax seed but chunks. In, I would think so. That's what it yeah. looks like to me. So I think there's a huge variety of of flowers that they would be using. Because remember, we've got barley too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Although I think barley is mostly used for beer as opposed to bread, but
1: there's no reason why they weren't using it. Mm-hmm. So where does the project kind of stand now? You mentioned you guys are releasing a paper soon and that mm-hmm. you're working on the genetics of the yeast too to see if yeah. there's different genetic profiles as well.
2: Yeah, so we just wanted to test the... And, and identify the 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 species mm-hmm. of the get the genetic profile of the of the two yeast strains that we have. So one is a beer and one is a bread. Mm-hmm. So the 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 bread is like I said from the mill kingdom, but the beer is all kingdom mm-hmm. from from Giza from the the Reisner excavations, and so so that's at Harvard, and and we're working with a microbiologist who's Egyptian. Oh, cool. Which is really fantastic, and so we're getting more and more Egyptians involved, and it's uh, that's being done at Harvard. So that that's part of it. And then we want to start writing some papers. We're just just getting started on it, and it, and that's all the the bread, the, everything that we just discussed in the last couple of minutes about the experimental archaeology and and the way in which we think that that ancient bread was being made, at least in the Old Kingdom. So so that's that's where we are right now, and then. We've got some ideas about doing a, re- a recreation of a, mm-hmm. an ancient bakery in Egypt, hopefully somewhere around Giza in collaboration with the new museum and giving it back to the Egyptians for them to to make something out of it, you know, to, mm-hmm. to create an ancient bakery. And could you just um, imagine visiting Giza and then, you know, kind of like that pharaonic village, mm-hmm. but but less cheesy than that horrible <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. you know, you could see the whole process of of you know, hopefully growing. There would be a you know an emmer field nearby, and then there would be the crushing and the grinding and the sieving and the and the making of the dough, and then the baking. And then you could walk away with a a loaf of bread that was made in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And then you could maybe even buy emmer flour. You could buy the yeast sample, and and it would all be done right there at Giza mm-hmm. using the ancient methods. Because it's a it's one hundred percent possible. And uh, that would just be such such an experience for our tourists. And in and the one thing that I've, I've noticed about this project, so there's a, there's a new term that got coined by a guy on Twitter. He's called it gastro-Egyptology. <laughs> and it's really been fascinating to me to watch this project really explode in the public imagination. And I just, I never thought that anyone would be interested in this. other was just me being nerdy and trying to, you know, do something different with, you know, by merging my, my, my passion for homebrewing and my passion for Egyptology and put them together. But this has just really taken off. And it's just, it's this tangible aspect where you're like eating the past, mm-hmm. you know, and you're doing something from the past that people every day throughout all of history do all the time. They eat bread. Mm-hmm. They if people can. can eat it. They'll freak out. If people can ride mm-hmm. and take cards
0: and have a party with it, throw in some alcoholic beverages of some kind, make make a little buffet, everyone's going to be super happy and want to try it out. Yeah, it draws a lot of Could attention. you
2: imagine this ancient bakery and then obviously a brewery would be the mm-hmm. whole thing and walking away with, you know, an a, a daily ration of mm-hmm. a beer
1: and bread, mm-hmm. that would just be absolutely wild. Yeah, there's a connection um, but- there by being able to in- eat yeah. or dress or somehow engage with the past beyond pictures or just reading oh, no, I'm about cracking it open a
0: kombucha as soon as I'm done with
1: this We're,
0: I'm getting a kombucha open I'm gonna look at how much alcohol is in there I'll have to look it up online probably but that's okay I'll enjoy it I'll feed some to my son <laughs> yeah
1: so I w- want to pivot if everyone's okay with that unless there's any other further questions about yeast bread beer Okay. I mean, okay. there's so much, there's so much well, more, so one much, say, yes. but I think it's
0: fine. I think it's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm still stuck in my head about this whole grain, white grain thing. and thinking about Baladi and how it's, oh, yeah. it's whole grained as far as I can tell that it's probably just whole grain and, and they didn't yep. try to keep it into, they tr- didn't try to, some breads, maybe some of the more elite breads would have been a white grain but I think most of it would have been this coarse grain. And mm-hmm. the emmer wheat that Seamus made for me, it wasn't so dense. It wasn't like some of, you know, you go to the German bakeries, you get a, a a very heavy, dark bread. It didn't have that consistency to me at all. Certainly not with the sourdough. So no, yeah. And, and one little final thing when Seamus was making the bread and he's, you know, kneading it and putting it in the pot and, cause he was showing me the process and then he had a, mm. a loaf ready to go kind of like, you know julia child back in the day on tv and and you know he's like and here you see it rising and then you see all those little bubbles and then you put it in the oven and then all the yeast that's made these bubbles then they die mm-hmm. so you know the idea that you're eating dead yeast cavities and that's what makes it so light and airy and delicious is just a wonderful way to think of of bread that is funny that's yeah. funny he's he has a wonderful way of describing it so yeah great
1: so totally pivoting a bit, what's your current work? So you're, you're passionate about science communication, bringing archaeology to the classroom, to the greater public. What's your current work with the Everett Institute? What else are you working on? Yeah, um, Sure. So I work for a,
2: a not-for-profit called the Everett Mil- Institution. We also trade under the name the Everett Foundation, and it's a branch of a cultural heritage consultancy that we created a charity about five years ago. And our whole purpose is to give back, to give back to the Aboriginal communities in Australia that we work with, because so much of what we do actually facilitates the destruction of cultural heritage. Mm-hmm. And yet when you work with communities, you can sense their passion and, the, and how much they've lost over the last 200 years. And so we wanted to try and give back wherever we could. And it's difficult, it's challenging, and it's unbelievably rewarding. I was on a field trip last week and my legs are so sore I can barely go up and down the stairs, my knees absolutely trashed, and I wouldn't have given it up for anything. You know, it was 12-hour days. We did 25 kilometers in three days. But what we got to see and experience, and I was working with an elder, and it was just so, so rewarding. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, that's where I am now. That's what I do.
0: Serena, when you say so much of what we does destroys cultural heritage, do you mean modern humanity? Do you mean archaeology? Do you mean both? Do you mean building yeah. urbanism? So in,
2: yeah, and cultural heritage is different. Well, it's it's the same in, in the US as it is here. So we usually get engaged by proponents who are working to develop the land in some way. Right. So they're residential development, wind farms, solar farms, coal mines, any of the mines of mineral extraction railroads, road development, all that kind of stuff. And so that that's where consultancy comes in. There's, you know, hundreds of consultants across the country and that's what we do. We just work alongside proponents. We either work for the proponent or we work for the Aboriginal party. Our company, we typically work for the Aboriginal party, but we do sometimes are on the other side of the fence representing the proponent. And so, yeah, so that it facilitates the destruction because we're, we're trying to get the best outcome so that the aboriginal party will get to record and document their sites before they get lost but then the proponent gets to build their railway or build Mm -hmm. you know a new bridge or whatever it is that they're doing Mm -hmm. so and it's sad it's sad to see these amazing sites and i don't often get to win i've had very few wins over the, the years where i've actually found something that was so significant that i got to change the course of a bridge But now they're going to go to the other side of the road and destroy the site on the other side. Mm -hmm. So I got to save one and I'm going to lose the
0: other. So yeah, we we just saw this on Facebook the other day, Frank Monnier, he's an Egyptologist and architectural specialist of pyramidal structures in particular. And he commented how Abu Rawash, that there was a paving area, giant paving area of stones brought in and that it had been completely dismantled and destroyed to build a new highway. So. You know, and these things happen without the the consultation necessarily of archaeological consultants, though I have to believe that something happened. But when when people discover it, you know, they, it was still done pretty quiet like and was very disturbing for Egyptians and and the non-Egyptians alike.
1: And so one of so this work you're doing with the Everick Institute sounds like mm-hmm. both one really fulfilling. And before we started recording, we were discussing about, you know, academia and All of us have very different journeys throughout academia. A lot of the focus of our podcast has been on alternative academia and just demystifying academia in general. Mm. And so can you speak to your journey through this process? You know, the humanities being underfunded, there's not jobs, the jobs that do exist don't pay very well. And so it's great to see PhDs and professionals in other roles that are using the skills that we cultivate throughout our programs in great ways, still including archaeology, still working with cultural heritage. What's the one thing you think the public or audience should maybe know about this? So there is life after academia. There is (laughs) a life outside
2: the academy. It's better paid and say that for sure. But it's it's hard. It's not an easy decision. It's I do refer to myself as a recovering academic. But, you know, I I started my book, The Good Kings, by saying I'm a recovering
0: Egyptologist. (laughs) And that's and that's from inside the academy. But yeah.
2: Yeah, it's it. it, I feel like I left an abusive relationship Mm -hmm. is is what I, I felt like I was in love with someone who didn't love me back. And, uh, you know, as much as I got beaten up, I just kept coming back for more. So I'm, I'm sorry to use the example of domestic violence. I don't use that lightly, but it, it did feel like that. Mm-hmm. In- it's funny, Serena, because it's exactly the analogy I use in The Good Kings.
0: It, I, I start off with it and I end with it. And I think it's it, I, I use it for authoritarian power, not necessarily the academic hierarchy, but it works. <laughs> it works very well. You know, They're I,
2: the
1: authoritarian I, in their way. I don't know why I just kept. Putting up with it
2: over and over and over again. Well, um, they I, tell
1: us, "Oh, you chose this because you love it, so you should be willing to put up with." It's the same thing abusers tell their abusers, yeah. right? You know, they're yeah. gaslit <laughs> uh, in a sense. Yeah. And you know, you you the
2: amount of I, I've moved countries six times. You know, I've got a degree from from University of Sheffield and University College London. So I was in the UK for five years. I spent a year living in Egypt as an undergrad. I was at the American University in Cairo. I took a position at Brown University. So, you know, again, cross-country move. I took a position at Koç University in Istanbul. And then I took a three-year position at University of Queensland in Australia. So I just kept, and then that's when I called it quits. So I was like, look, I'm in Australia, I'm going to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, and at this, you know, by the time, I, by the time I left the academy, I was 42 years old and I thought, Jesus, where, where am I going next? Like mm-hmm. I was at coach and I was already away from my partner for a year. And I thought, this is, this is bullshit. I'm not enjoying this. And I was being headhunted in Copenhagen. They're like, oh, I just come to Copenhagen for two years. And I thought, well, my partner's not going to come. Mm-hmm. And by the time I leave there, I'm 44. I still don't have a permanent job. So I'm on this cycle again. When is this ever going to end? And it was just these constant of these short term positions that I was uprooting my life over and over again. And, you know, maybe when you're in your 20s, maybe your early 30s, that's tolerable and it's it's exciting. And it's but look, when you got into my 40s, I'm like, I've had enough. <laughs> like, I'm I, I, I would I really feel that like already. <laughs> and, you know, because I've been doing it my whole career. I mean, by the time I think I had 19 addresses in 22 years in three different countries like that. God, I was, that's awful. I was, that's enough. And mm-hmm. you know, you you travel to these amazing places and I can't I can't buy anything. So I've got nowhere to put it. I've uh-huh. got no money. I'm absolutely broke. While, well, you know, my friends are are buying houses and having babies and settling down. And then but they look at me like I'm so exotic and I'm so amazing. And you have this this life that we all envious of. And I'm looking at them with, you know, that they own things. They own a car. They own a house. Uh-huh. You know, they have a stable relationship. And I was like, Yeah, I got none of that. And so I was always wanting what the other person has. But I, I mean, I, in, in in a lot of ways, I wouldn't give it up. I, I, I have had a tremendous career, but it's just been very ad hoc. And a little bit here and a little bit there. I worked in Egypt. I worked, you know, my PhD was ultimately in Turkey. And now I live in Australia and I work in Aboriginal archaeology. Like those are three completely different things. And how does any of that make sense together other than that's just how my life turned out? So, yeah, when... The hardest thing is I I decided to leave the academy. It was the end of 2016. I didn't have a visa for Australia. So I moved back to Australia. I didn't have a job. I didn't have a visa. And I had 10 grand in the bank. And that was it. And and my visa, my permanent residency application, cost me $8,000. So I basically spent all my savings just to get a permanent residency visa. And then despite the fact that I have a PhD from Stanford... I'm a highly skilled, highly trained person. My visa was attached to my partner. Yeah, I could not come here and live in Australia as a skilled migrant. I had to come here as a partner.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: and that to me shipped me to tears because, mm-hmm. like, I'm more qualified than he is, mm-hmm. but I'm only here, and I got my my permanent residency because of my relationship with my partner, who you know we've been together for nearly 11 years now, and you know, he's he's my world. But yeah, the fact that I had to come here on him and you're still your six, own person, yeah. I'm <laughs> still my own person. For six months, I was hugely depressed and had no idea what I'm going to do with myself. And yeah, I just I started doing information interviews with people because mm-hmm. I thought, what What's next? What What do I do? Following all the blogs on Alt Academy and and what choices there are, and I I knew I didn't want to do consultancy because I just didn't yeah. enjoy it. I did it a, a little bit in the U.S. and it's just this just wasn't great, and so do you I started mean archaeological
0: consultancy? What you're doing now?
2: You like, I don't want to do that. I didn't want to do it, and in fact, it's what I, I I I only did it for a couple of years with the company that I'm with, and then we created the charity. So if it, I probably wouldn't have lasted as a consultant because I don't really enjoy it because it's all legal mm-hmm. and everything that we do is dictated by the law. But we started the charity, and then I was okay because then I got to do teaching and outreach and engagement and public mm-hmm. community, you know. Yeah, in, Science, Science communication and research. And we've got a paper out in nature, which is just tremendous because it's being led by indigenous communities. And yes. What's the paper in nature? What's the topic? It's, a, it's about a site in Southeast Queensland, where I am. And it's one of the oldest. It's, it's pushed a date back, an excavation that we did it pushed a date back from 21,000 to 49,000.
0: And this is and then- a date for
2: human occupation at a particular site. Which means yeah. that people
0: came from South India to Australia fifty thousand years ago. That's oh, awesome. longer
2: than It's that. amazing. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, it's we've got evidence of sixty five thousand in the north of Australia. So, it, but it shows continuous occupation yeah. in one place for cool. twenty thirty thousand years. It's My something God. tremendous. You just don't get that anywhere else. Like Serena, tell please amazing. tell me they didn't build a, a Walmart on top of this amazing site a mine it's a sand mine a
0: sand mine so that we can have more sand glass glass Mm -hmm. Uh, wine so we can have wine wine
2: yeah beer
0: and we come full
2: circle god damn it (laughs) well done yes (laughs) so those sites are actually preserved but it was originally found because of of sand mining Mm -hmm. they cut a road and and hit through a shell midden but uh, yeah, it's been a wild ride, mm-hmm. but it's, there is life outside the academy is all I can say. And and it's not just, you know, museums or teaching. I you know I had the adjunct job, my mm-hmm. first job out of university. So I finished at Stanford and then I was teaching continuing studies. I was teaching at the community college and I was a private tutor and I was driving around teaching the rich kids in, in Palo Alto.
0: And all my the- students
2: know there will be no adjuncting.
0: There will be no adjuncting. There it's there are so horrible. many other careers out there that give you benefits, that pay you with respect that you deserve. There will be no adjuncting, which is really, it's it's one of the most sinful things that higher ed is doing to its best workers. It's, it's really awful.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How many how many ladder faculty are there in the academy now? It's less than 15%. Yeah. And when you and I were coming up, Serena, it was, I, I would say 45, 40%. Yeah. And all it's those boomers, changed. it was like 80, 85, 90%. And they want to privatize the shit out of this and make people work for, for nothing. That's what they've done. And now everyone's paying for their own degree because we won't subsidize if it's not white men who are being subsidized. If everyone else, like women and people of color want to get an education, then they have to pay for it
1: mm-hmm. and pull
0: themselves up by different non-existing bootstraps. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, adjuncting is a, is a big no. So I'm glad you walked away from that.
2: <laughs> no. But it's hard because you're trained in a certain way. We were saying before we started recording that it's a bit of a cult, you know, like I, I'm not going to name and shame my supervisor because that's not the point. But when I sent the email to say, like, I'm leaving the academy and he basically wrote me off and said, well, good luck with that. Wow.
1: You know, I was like, saying you, how it- you're very supportive.
2: <laughs>
0: Oh, no. They're, they're, I mean, but I know those people. I know those people that that shame and blame their students for not being able to get a professorship, even though none mm-hmm. exist. Mm-hmm. I don't understand it, but I do know those. I have yeah. those colleagues. And and then students can't have an open relationship with their advisor and they don't have any other places to go. And this is, I would say, almost the norm. So, yeah, a lot of boomers are retiring now, but they're not getting replaced nationwide, globally. Mm-hmm. They're getting replaced with adjuncts. And so we we have that that cult of hierarchical, toxic, you do it my way, the way that I did it in 1967, or you don't do it at all, even though that way doesn't exist. It's still there. Mm-hmm. It's still
1: very much there,
0: which is which is deeply distressing for students who are getting PhDs now.
1: But as you can see here today, right, you can get a degree in something, still pursue it, and still find a fulfilling career maybe not within the academy, but adjacent to you and still use all those skill sets. I'm trying to end on a happy light. (laughs) No, you're
0: right. So let's say (laughs) that even though you might find yourself in a cultish toxic place, if you have a PhD, you have an asset of great worth and that asset can be translated into extraordinary things. And out of my students, some of them work at universities, not in a professorial capacity, but are much happier, I would say working in that way, do very well. Th- four of my students work in, in that capacity. I, there's one of my former students who works at Google mm-hmm. and makes more than me. And that's, and it's awesome and runs a whole research team. And he can do that because he has the PhD. So yeah. these things are, are not worthless. And um, there are other people that go into intelligence. They go into diplomacy. They go into other NGOs. There's all kinds of things that people can do. So I don't want to, and, and of course there's consultancy archaeology. As you do, Serena. So it's mm-hmm. it's it's really important.
1: You're still doing really cool research, you know, it's and fantastic. contributing. Um yeah. with all I'm still writing
2: grants, writing writing
1: Well, do you ever escape yeah. writing more grants? <laughs> no,
2: <laughs> no. But there's like, like Kara says, it's there's people everywhere. I know so many people that are working in like the gaming industry mm-hmm. um, and and augmented reality. Like, there's so much technology now. That's coming in. And I I I'm so excited, like when I'm 80 years old, what archaeology is going to look like.
1: Mm-hmm. Because
2: all this technology that's coming in, like this field trip that I just did, I had a LIDAR drone with me. And we we're because we were looking for caves and rock art and, and and other stuff. And so we're we're flying a lidar drone. So I can erase the the vegetation and, and look into these caves. Like this this is just mind blowing. So right. Cool. And I've got another small drone that we could fly into little caves to see if there's anything in there Mm -hmm. and you know we're doing photogrammetry on a a piece of stone that we think might have an astronomical significance and so we we were doing photogrammetry and 3d modeling of it and just there's all this side of it like I've I in my company we hired a videographer and a graphic designer and you know if you've got all these other pet passions these things, you know, mixed with archaeology, there's a career mm-hmm. uh, ahead, and also the creative industries like creative writing, non, you know, nonfiction writing. Kara's done TV. I worked twenty years ago. I did a television program, and when I was in London, and and there's this whole world that you can use the skill set,
1: mm-hmm. and it's
2: not just the academy. It's very fulfilling mm-hmm. and very. You just have to be lateral and and break those chains of. It's the academy or nothing.
1: Don't There's say no it's a no bad relationship.
2: In the yeah. There is no shame. There's, there, And if no. you
0: are shamed for it, then you need to run. But yeah. there should be no shame. In Dump the bad choices. boyfriend. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yes. Dump him. Dump him. Well, on that note, I just want to thank you for stopping by all the way from Australia to chat with us today. <laughs> thank we. you. I've been following your and Seamus' work for so long. Looking forward to seeing the work get published and it coming out and reading more up on it. And are you sampling more pieces? Doing any other, trying to build up the database?
2: Yeah, we've got a couple of museums that are considering our requests at the moment. And then a few more. So if anyone other has some contacts, other places that we can... And obviously, the next hurdle is to actually sample in Egypt, and actually have the material processed in Egypt by Egyptians. So that's the next, that's the
1: next step down the down the track. But we're not too far away from that. That's great. Yeah, yeah that that would be wonderful. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that could, I mean, there's so many sample so many options places. there. Yeah, so that would I can't be wait. Amazing to see. Yeah, but go
0: to a village, find some ovens. You know, do some New Kingdom style baking. I think that could be really, really cool. That's play plan. I love it.
1: Watch this space. Yes. Yeah. So everyone will keep an eye out for your work coming out and any thank you. project updates. Mm-hmm. This is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. Yay. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed the Thank listening. you, Serena. Thank you to our listeners for your
0: support and please subscribe. It's a big deal with all the platforms, so subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends, and most importantly, leave us a five star review. It really helps with all those aforementioned platforms. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. We read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Join our vibrant and subversive online community at patreon.com slash afterlives and get access to our private discord server, where Jordan and I can connect with our listeners far, far away from all those toxic social media spaces. And do not forget to check out our substack ancient now at ancientnow.substack.com where we share perspectives on all that history and archeology span news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. You can find me on Facebook at Karakuni Egyptologist, and on Twitter and Instagram at Karakuni. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.